Tate. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm having dinner. No, I'm having a cup of tea. I'm not even having anything. You have a glass a, of water. A meta-vegan, Kevin Hewison. He's a meta-vegan in that he eats vegans. So, <laughs> first meta-vegan ever to come out as such. See you, Barbara. Now, Kevin, how are you? Not bad, Toby. How are you doing? All right. We're here at Murdoch University, where probably we first met about 25 or so years ago. Yeah. But I've barely seen you since, during which time you've been all over. But now you're back here. Yep. And I think I'm right in saying you're running the Asia Research Centre. That's right. Um, which was when I, I graduated from here with a PhD, which was back in the early 80s, went away for a while and came back when the Asia Research Centre was being established. And... Uh, I was a member of that, and now I come back to head it up 20 years later. Wow. <coughs> we did a podcast with Dick Robeson the other uh-huh. day uh, about, actually before you and I and others met up for dinner, and uh, obviously he was involved in establishing the Asia Research Centre. Maybe you could tell us just a little bit about the centre now, and then we could focus more on your work and go back, 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 as they say in baseball. Okay, yeah. Well, the centre at the moment, um, I came back to a much larger centre than one that I left. And when I left, the centre had a very clear research focus because of the kind of funding that it had. So coming back, it's a different kind of centre entirely. Um, over the years, because of the way that funding has changed in Australian universities, people uh, had to uh, get out and find their own money. So what we've got, instead of one funded research project, we have a series of research projects Mm -hmm. run by various individuals who have been associated with the centre. And at the moment we have about, um, I think it's about 35 academics who are associated with the centre in one way or another, Uh spread across the university, Uh, but mainly in the School of Management and Governance and also in um, the School of Arts, but some in veterinary life sciences, for example. And we also have, at the moment, 37 PhD students. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a big group, uh, much bigger than it's ever been before. And these students, likewise, because they're attached to supervisors, are spread across uh, across the campus in various ways. But most of the PhD students kind of sit with us, in a sense. Uh, we have a corridor in the university which has a number of offices in it, and we have uh, many of our PhD students sitting there with us. So it creates a kind of a an atmosphere where the students and some of the faculty come together at lunchtime and morning tea and that sort of stuff and we talk about things and we have um, a quite active series of seminars where students and uh, faculty also get together and discuss issues with guest speakers. That's terrific. And uh, Kevin, uh, you came here from University of North Carolina, I got that, is that where you were? UNC, Chapel Hill, part of the research triangle, Mm -hmm. so-called, as it were. Uh, what's it like making a shift from a big, prominent, renowned state school in this very intensive but very strange part of a very strange state to come back to a place like Murdoch, a smaller scale in many ways, but in a city? Yeah. Uh, I've got to say that Chapel Hill was a great university to be in. I really enjoyed it. I was there for uh, around about nine years, and I was the director of the Carolina Asia Center there. And a uh, professor in, uh, when I got there, a relatively new Department of Asian Studies, even though Asian Studies had been around as a program for 20-something years, it had just become a uh, department. So I was in, in a, um, 
a new centre, a new department, which was building in a very old university, uh, and well-established university. And we got uh, lots of support, uh, we got lots of grant funding, um, and it was a relatively successful building project, even, th even though uh, this went on through the economic crisis, the financial downturn. Uh, we were still able to raise funds and hire faculty. So you felt as though you were in a growing part of the university and an, in, an interesting part of the university, which linked with Duke up the road, which had um, interesting Asian studies people. Uh, so it was, it was a good place to be. Uh, and coming back to Murdoch, uh, there were a couple of motivations. One was kind of coming home because this is where I grew up and Murdoch is where I did my PhD and even my honours. Um, I'd maintained contacts with Murdoch over the years. And uh, when yeah. Murdoch appointed a new Vice-Chancellor, Richard <coughs> Hill, um, who had a different vision for the university, wanted to change it into a university that had some research focus, uh, I was caught up by that vision. So uh, I decided to come back and uh, participate in that. Mm. And it's been very difficult uh, in many ways because it is a small university, relatively small university, especially in Australian terms. Um, there's not huge amounts of funding available outside the Australian government-funded agencies. So it's a completely different process that you're involved yeah. in. Uh, you know, UNC is a well-endowed university and its, um, yeah. its alums are very powerful, whereas Murdoch's only coming up 40 years old. Yeah. So it's a different kind of... Um, um, you have to work in quite different ways. Right. And mean, it's been hard to get used to. Even very reactionary politicians in the United States who shout negatively about universities. Jesse Holmes. Jesse Holmes. Jesse Holmes, <laughs> who was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was a very powerful person, shitted all over the research triangle on the grounds that, for example, you know, you should put a fence around it to keep them yep, in. Yep. He referred, anything, he referred to it as the zoo. Anything UNC wanted, it got. Exactly. And, and not only that, that meant things like if UNC invited a Cuban or an Iranian, then unlike any other university in the country, you knew those people would get visas. Yep. Jesse would help. His office would help. They, those guys actually know what politics is about. Yep. Really, is Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. Yeah. And um, no matter what they said in Newsweek or on Fox News, they actually said, you know, these are constituents and they're going to get what they want. Yeah, and they saw some of the things that were happening in the, particularly you mentioned the research triangle, as being important to yeah. the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you a question emerging from that about area studies. You know, I work in Latin American studies, mm -hmm. which is massive in the US, but negligible in Australia. What are some of the differences between area studies in the US, which really birthed area studies because of the Ford Foundation, the Social Sciences Research Council, and a whole project of a, an anti-Marxist left, liberal left. Yep. What are the differences between parlaying Asian studies there and here? It's a, it's a good question because I'm still, I think even though I've been back here for about 18 months now, I'm still trying to get my head around it. As you say, in the US, you know, Title VI funding, which was sort of uh, anti-communist, counter-insurgency based in many ways, was important. This is the Edu Federal Education Act which basically makes it possible for universities and cross-university alliances to emerge to set up area studies domains with federal money. Yep, and, to, and has a related program which funds uh, particular PhD students to get language competency and so on and do their PhDs. 
So that's a, you know, most of the area study centres in the US come out of that mould. Or and most of them still work in that mould. Um, in Australia, it's, it's quite different. You don't have that kind of funding. Uh, you don't have uh, federal programs which are specifically targeted to area studies. But I think the, the big difference for me is in the US, there was a, a split uh, that developed between, for example, I work in uh, politics or political science, they call it there, but I could never be in the political science department at UNC. <laughs> except as an adjunct, because I was considered area studies. I didn't do big end studies of 180 countries and ask the question, what is democracy, kind of thing, and get an answer, statistically. Um, and then on the other hand... You also spoke a language other than English, which disqualifies you from producing <laughs> Yeah. Um, the, the, the other thing, um, the other side of that debate in the US was in kind of area studies departments, but people who were very influenced by uh, the changes in cultural studies and so on, who argued that, well, you could never be an area studies specialist unless you'd spent 10 or 15 years immersing yourself in the language and culture. And there was very little middle ground. Uh, whereas in, I think in Australia still, and perhaps in, in Europe, and certainly in Asia itself, there is a middle ground where people can be area study specialists and they can work on a country or a region uh, and still be considered uh, legitimate political scientists or legitimate sociologists or whatever they are. And I think that's that makes it a bit easier in Australia. You know, I can go to the Australian Political Studies Association conferences and there'll be other people around that I can talk to. I can go to the Asian Studies Association conference in Australia and there are plenty of political scientists around mm. who have panels and you can talk to. In the US, that's a little bit harder, mm. and it's becoming even harder still, I think. So that's one of the nice <laughs> things about coming back to Australia. You feel as though uh, if you're working in something called area studies, you're kind of still in the mainstream. So I can work in area studies, but I can still be considered a yeah, contributing science. to political now, science. I was interested in your mentioning Asian studies in Asia, because Latin American studies really only exist in one country. As you probably know, it's not big in Latin America oh, itself. Yeah. They, they don't do it. But in Asia, Asian studies is a thing. Yeah. Um, in fact, the uh, American Asian Studies Association had its first out-of-US conference recently, or out-of-North America conference, and it was held in Singapore. And the next one is going to be in Taipei. Uh, so that says something about they think there's an audience for what they do in, in Asia. And in fact, uh, there's also a conference coming up in, I think it's either Tokyo or Kyoto, maybe Kyoto, later in the year, mm -hmm. which is bringing together the Asian Studies Associations from the region together for a conference in Kyoto uh, and trying to build networks of Asian Studies Institutes. For example, and for example, the two groups that my centre here, the Asia Research Centre, deals with is the Southeast Asia Research Centre, which is at City University in Hong Kong. And we're just talking about having joint relationships <laughs> with a Southeast Asian centre, actually called an East Asian centre, but mostly Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. at Sogang University in Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've had uh, mutual visits. Uh, later on this year, we're having a joint conference, Asia Research Centre at Murdoch and the Southeast Asia Research Centre at um, uh, City University in Hong Kong. We're having a joint conference there. Now, I should declare an interest in that I set up the Southeast Asia Research <laughs> Centre in uh, Hong Kong, but that was an idea 
which had come from the president, then president of the university, who had been to Xiamen in China, seen their Southeast Asia Research Centre and said, hey, we need one in, in so Hong Kong. So when were you in Hong Kong? Uh, I went there in um, 2000 and left at the end of 2004. And my job was essentially to go up and set up this Southeast Asia Research Centre, which has been uh, very successful, has spun off a department of international and Asian studies which uh, is, has got quite a, quite a research profile internationally now. Mm -hmm. And Kevin, your interest initially in Asia, you're a Perth kid yep. right, from yep. Western Australia, where we are, and we're, for those who don't know Australian geography, we're you know, on the Indian Ocean, and you might think in some ways that people here would turn to Africa, mm -hmm. uh, but in fact Asia is as big a fetish here as it is in the Northern Territory, and with good reason given the state's dependence on exports of raw materials. Yep, yep. But what drew your fancy, 30, I guess, 30 years ago? To Southeast yeah, Asia, that, and to Thailand in particular. Yeah, 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, to Thailand in particular. Well, it was, you know, back in, in those days, um, Western Australia and Perth in particular was kind of parochial, provincial, small, um, and most people, most students I knew who travelled uh, went to Europe. They went home almost to Britain, mm -hmm. and I could never afford that. So you took, you took a drug trail option instead. Yes, yes. In fact, um, I mean, it's a longer story than that. I, I was at uh, what was then called the West Australian Institute of Technology doing my undergraduate degree, and there were a couple of people there who had an interest in Asia, uh, one in Japan and another one in uh, Southeast Asia. And so I'd been studying stuff, and that was the time when, you know, Andre Gundefrank and mm. uh, Samir Amin, and, uh, the development of underdevelopment was important. The Vietnam War was still going on. Mm -hmm. um, Gough Whitlam had come in in Australia and allowed me to go to university for free. Mm -hmm. um, you came from a working-class background? Yes. With, without yeah. a lot of money? And yep. Without yep. the cultural capital yep. of the middle class? Yep. yep. Uh, no one in my family had ever been to university. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of an, int an interest. But I still worked on weekends and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, pump and petrol in gas stations. And uh, saved up money, and the only place I could really afford to go to was was uh, Southeast Asia, because the charter flights students mm -hmm. had in those mm -hmm. days they would stop in Bangkok on their way Drop to on their way to Europe with most of the people staying on the yeah, plane. Yeah, yeah. So we stopped in Bangkok, and then sort of by gravity we're going to end up in Bali and then come home. And I did that two years in a row. But those two years were at a time when the Vietnam War was ending. Uh, we planned to go to Laos, but that became difficult. Laos, uh, yeah. Um, so we we spent a, quite a bit of time in Thailand, and they just had a revolution, which had overthrown the military dictatorship of which had been in place. This was in nineteen. We were there in nineteen seventy four. The revolution had been in nineteen seventy three. Uh, the military regime had been in there since nineteen fifty seven. So things had opened up, and Thailand became really, really interesting mm. at that time. So that interest spurred me to do some more. Uh, get some more money to go and do it the following year, did it the following year, and then in 1976, the counter-revolution came. Mm -hmm. Military uh, dictatorship, uh, massacre of students at Tamasak University. And I'd been reading about Thailand, and I'm thinking, nothing prepared me for this. Mm -hmm. So I started, that's how my interest, you know, how do we explain this uh, royalist mili military backlash against students who in those days they were considered 
to be leaning to the left, but actually they were just introducing liberalism to Thailand. So I tried. That's where it started, and what I was trying well, you to do. You do realize rational choice theory could have explained all of that right. without you even going to Bangkok. I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> yeah, I got caught up in uh, trying to understand. You know, you had all these books that talked about how Thais were Buddhist and. Uh, avoided conflict and all those sorts of things, and yet that 73 to 76 period was unending conflict and murders. There were, you know, hundreds of murders of people who were considered against the royalist military regime. And we've seen, you know, for those people who don't have a lot of background, maybe you could just give a little about the absence of colonialism, um, but of course its overhang and its presence, and the seemingly countless coups even in what is regarded as a sort of stable monarchical society. It's a very unusual place, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, um, Thailand wasn't formally a colony, but it, um, its monarchy moved the country into a kind of a colonial-like situation where they introduced, you know, rationalised bureaucracy and all those sorts of things, but maintained uh, a monarchy. And even when the monarchy was overthrown, the absolute monarchy was overthrown in 1932, this led to a situation where there was constant um, political fighting between groups that can now be identified probably as royalist and those who were favouring some kind of democratic development in Thailand and there's been this constant to and fro. But uh, the military has been in, ch in charge for most of this period, uh, whether directly or behind the scenes. Um, so even, you know, the last coup, which depends how you count them, you know, people say it's the 12th or 13th successful coup, but there's been 19 or 20 military interventions or attempted coups in that period since 1932. Even the CIA can't keep up. <laughs> no. Um, you know, when you read the WikiLeaks cables, of course, uh, you realise that, um, you know, when there was a coup in 2006, the US Embassy was not necessarily uh, manipulating it, but they were pretty happy about it. Uh, they're probably not so happy with the 2014 coup uh, because it's just made uh, relationships with a, a country that's been a, a steadfast ally of the US through all those military periods when the CIA was paying for Thai troops to fight in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and so on. Um, it's made it much more difficult now. Why is it more difficult? Well, you know, the US um, has had this pivot to Asia which, in its policy which it's not been able to undertake, really, because of it, it keeps getting distracted, of course, by things happening in the Middle East and Pakistan and so on. Um, and China has uh, risen as an economic and political power in the region. So uh, the US wants to have a stable relationship uh, with Thailand. But the, uh, the constant coups mean that, by law, every time there's a military coup, the US has to cut off military aid, even though it's not so huge. And this creates uh, problems for the US relationship. It can't concentrate on Thailand. It can't concentrate on the Southeast Asia region. And the Americans get worried that they're losing power and influence to, to the, China. the Chinese. And they're kind of obsessed with Myanmar, Burma, aren't they, also, because it's opening up? Yeah, although they're not... Yeah, they don't seem to be doing a, a huge amount. I mean, Southeast Asia, for the last 15, 20 years, has really been off the radar for the US. Uh, and they haven't, you know, they've relied on allies like Thailand to be a placeholder for them, in a sense. Every time, you know, uh, every time uh, there's a shift towards Asia, something happens in the Middle East and they get completely right. dragged away from it again.
So, um, you know, the US has, has, in its own perception, has lost ground in Southeast Asia, but mm. doesn't seem to be able to uh, um, have those stable allies that they used to have in the past. Oddly, because of the South China Sea incursions by the Chinese and the disputes over the South China Sea, Vietnam seems one of the most stable allies of the US at the moment. Well, the Vietnamese, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Philippines, they will make friends, they want to remain friends or make friends. Yep, yep. Uh, but that Southeast Asia is much harder for the US to apparently deal with. Um, but what the US seems to be trying to do is to put in Northeast Asia, at least have proxies in place, yeah. Korea and uh, Japan. But they don't seem to be able to do that in Southeast Asia, and Thailand was the place that could do it. But when Thailand now has generals as foreign ministers wandering around in uniforms, talking about democracy when there is none, mm. it just looks bizarre. Now, a couple of things, Kevin. You mentioned culturalist explanations as per the prevalence of Buddhism mm -hmm. as being inadequate to mm -hmm. explain in Thailand. And you also gestured at there being an ongoing binarism between liberal democracy of a sort and monarchy of a sort. Could you maybe expand on this, please? Yeah, saying it's binary is probably going a bit too far, but there has been a, a constant tension between groups of people, and, and this goes back to the 1930s and maybe even earlier. In fact, I just finished writing an article on this. Um, I need to go back to it and see, look at it again and see whether it was successful. It's just finished its first draft kind of thing. Um, trying to look at this argument. I mean, in 1932, when the so-called, they called themselves the People's Party, came to power and overthrew the monarchy, a lot of analysts have referred to this as a, as a kind of a military coup. And it wasn't really. It was more than that. It was more thoroughgoing. And it had to do with notions of sovereignty. And the first announcement of the People's Party was that the people are sovereign. They didn't use that term, but they said, we've done this for the people and you are now in control of the country, essentially. So it transfers sovereignty to the people from the monarchy. Uh, the royalists, who were not, def not completely defeated at that time, and the king stayed on the throne for a number of years after that, and there's been a monarchy in place ever since, even though the monarch has been overseas for a long time, uh, in the uh, period from the mid-30s through until the early 50s. Um, the alternative uh, notion was one that they've called Thai-style democracy, which as you might guess is no democracy at all, <laughs> but it relies on a different kind of sovereignty. The king is sovereign. The king oversees a system which is moral. The king must be moral. The monarch must be moral uh, because he's so close to a Buddha uh, living on earth. Uh, he carries that mystique that goes with kingship, so he can oversee corrupt politicians. The best kind of politician is one who is loyal to the monarchy and who protects it. So when you've, in 2014, when you have a military coup, it's done essentially in the name of the monarchy to protect the monarchy. So the use of laissez-majesty laws goes through the roof, lots of people are thrown in jail for insulting the monarchy, etc., etc. So that dispute has been going on, and there's been a backwards and forwards trend in that throughout the period from 1932 until 2014. And it continues. Uh, for example, Thaksin Shinawatra's red shirts were considered by royalists to be anti-monarchy. Um, Thaksin must have been surprised by that. He always thought that he was a royalist. Um, whereas the yellow shirts wore yellow because they were showing their loyalty to the king. Yellow is the colour of the birthday of the king. So that dispute goes on. 
And where does class politics play out in this? You just mentioned Taksin, who you know is famous to British listeners. Yeah. <laughs> His football Manchester City. But uh, you know what underpins this in terms of class politics, or is there such an underpinning to this distinction? Yeah, of course, there's a debate about this in Thailand. Uh, there was a, there's a debate about who were the red shirts and who were the yellow shirts yeah. in terms of their class position or their socioeconomic status. Uh, but my argument, and I've written about this a bit, is that by going and looking at the people who are actually on the streets protesting and doing surveys of them, you don't actually find out who they really are and what their support is. So what I've tried to do is to go back and look at who voted for pro-Tuxin parties over these past 15 years, because pro-Tuxin parties have won every time there's been an election, they've won. And look at where they come from and then look at uh, sort of the data that's available that talks about incomes, and this can be a fairly gross kind of thing as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you're looking at gross provincial product, uh, uh, per capita GDP and all those sorts of things, but it's proxies for class. And it's very clear to me that the people who supported Tuxin and who voted uh, in very large numbers for Tuxin came from provinces which are poorer than the average, uh, are often... Um, uh, involved in rural livelihoods, so agriculture is lower productivity and so on, so they have lower incomes, and uh, then the, then the people who vote for the other side mm. or who support mm. the other side. And this is a very clear pattern. It's a very clear pattern. Uh, for example, on average across the whole of Thailand, and the only figure I have is for the 2007 election, the per, cap uh, the per capita GDP of the provinces and constituencies that voted for those opposed to Tuxin mm -hmm. was double that of those who voted for Tuxin. So there is, you know, so when the, the media was talking about, well, they're all the farmers and the workers who were supporting Tuxin, and this is all dismissed by political scientists who say there's not that much difference between the yellow shirts and the red shirts, um, I tend to be with the journalists. I think they, they got it right. And when I went to red shirt demonstrations back in 2010, uh, certainly late at night, uh, ten, uh, 8 to 10 o'clock, you'd see all the workers who have knocked off from factories that mm. surrounded Bangkok coming in to join the demonstrations. Um, a lot of the people who were there as the stock of the demonstrations were people from uh, rural families. Now, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily the poorest of the poor, but they're people who um, may be trying to get ahead and they saw Tuxin as providing particular um, resources to them which allowed them to do that. Now, this sounds like populist clientelism yes. uh, when we think about the incredible wealth of Tuxin and the yeah, fact yeah. that we'll it's as corrupt as they come, as yep. far as one can tell. Yep. Yep. There's all of that, but, um, you know, I don't think Tuxin got into politics to do anything else other than save the remnants of the bourgeoisie, Thai bourgeoisie, after the uh, financial crisis. I mean, if you looked at his uh, first cabinet in uh, 2001, it looked like, you know, the executive of the capitalist class. Mm -hmm. um, but as one of his uh, advisors once said in a uh, speech at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Thailand, which then got him banned from Thailand and he's still in exile because he was accused of insulting the monarchy, he said Tuxin sleepwalked into history. Tuxin didn't choose necessarily his political position. Uh, the position was chosen for him in many ways. So as he fell out with the elite for a variety of reasons, 
uh, he became a populist. Right. You know, he wasn't a populist to start off with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to go out and do speeches peppered with English, wearing a, a tie and a shirt and a jacket and that sort of stuff. Uh, I remember him talking about once about Weber and rational action, you know, rationality in, in bureaucracies and these sorts of things, using all these English words. I'm thinking, who's buying that? But within three, four years, uh, he was speaking local languages. He was mm. much more earthy type, because that's who he relied on for support. Yeah, yeah. The elite had abandoned, abandoned him. What about the military? Corrupt bastards is the best description of the military. You know, and, and, and again, in class terms, people talk about the military as being the servants of particular interests. Mm -hmm. But there's been data just released which shows that many military, many of the military grants are fabulously wealthy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they get paid low salaries. So that could be, you know, maybe they're all from very wealthy elite families, but they're not. Uh, you know, so the military has particular material interests to defend. And they do this in the name of the monarchy. They, since 1957, they've been doing it in the name of the monarchy, protecting the monarchy, fitting in with this notion of Thai-style democracy, supporting the moral king. And who's paying them? Well, I think they pay themselves in some ways. Uh, but, for example, after the 2006 coup, the military budget was expanded enormously. So when you expand the military budget, you're also uh, giving you know, military buy stuff with their budget, right? When they buy stuff, there's commissions and kickbacks and so on. And that, that's been in place for donkey's years. Uh, as soon as this military coup took place, the junta put military people in charge of all of the state enterprises, right? So you get a salary from that, but you also get, again, opportunities kickbacks. for commissions and commissions. Um, like the military controls large tracts of borderlands, all the human trafficking, all of the drug trafficking, all of the timber coming across the, illegally across the border, etc. They control. So they're not making money so much from corporations other than in the arms sector. They're actually making money from the grey or black economy. That's right, yes. Yeah, it's mainly black economy. So if you're a corporate investor, why would you put any money in Thailand? You wouldn't, would you? But well, people do. Yes, yeah. Um, cheap labour. Is one thing, although Thailand is not particularly cheap anymore compared to Vietnam. Uh, infrastructure is not all that great. Uh, it's fallen behind in recent years, fallen behind other places. So why do people invest in Thailand? Well, for for some people there are um, tax advantages. The U.S. has a special treaty with Thailand, which allows particular uh, advantages. There's the history of investment. Thailand ha has a long history of investment in particular areas. Um, that might have been textiles and garments in the past, but that's gone now. But, uh, for example, Ford, uh, GM and so on have their some of their most up-to-date assembly lines in Thailand. And that takes advantages of Asian free trade agreements, ASEAN free trade agreements and so on. Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Yeah. Uh, FTA with Australia. Uh, when free trade agreement. Yep. When Australia had um, a free trade agreement with Thailand, when that was completed, uh, a lot of the engines were made in Australia but put in vehicles in Thailand and then the vehicles shipped back to Australia, that kind of thing. Uh, most of the pickups are made in the US. A lot of the pickups that are made in the US are made in Thailand. So... Um, you know, there's that historical mm -hmm. legacy and investment and so on. But, and even through all of the turmoil of the last uh, 10, 15 years, foreign investment tended not to drop too much, but it seems to be holding off now. 
And it seems that there's been some kind of maybe a tipping point reach where people are just saying Thailand's too much trouble. They had the big floods in 2011. They've had all these political disputations. They've still got martial law, which means that uh, tourists are staying away. So if you're investing in hotels and things like that, maybe not so great. So there's, there may be a bit of a reconsideration of Thailand at the moment. Um, on the other hand, most of the big investment houses keep saying, you know, buy Thai stocks, they're good value and all that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Now, can I get back? This is really my last question. Let's see if anything more comes out of it or anything you want to add. I want to return to this culturalism issue. Uh -huh. uh, as I mentioned before, you would refer to the sort of Buddha-central, Buddha-centrist <laughs> explanations of Thai conduct. Yeah versus political, economical, historical ones. And this is something that came up a little bit in my discussion with Dick about Indonesia. It's something that you've alluded to as being one of the tensions within Asian studies more generally. I wonder if you could just, talking a bit about Thailand, but more generally as well, help people who might be outside this debate to see where, if you like, political economy and cultural explanations intersect and don't. Do you get my drift? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult... Uh, question to to answer and it, you get ponderous answers to it I guess uh, <laughs> well this can't be you know, this is the cultural studies podcast this has to be dynamic and exciting and fun yeah. you're on notice no pressure yeah yeah <laughs> well um you know, there's been a tendency amongst people who might call themselves political economists to dis dismiss culturalist analysis. Um, and I'm not going to answer your question directly, I guess. Um, and I, you know, that the, the notion that you could explain Thailand by adherence to Buddhism just never quite grabbed me because, you know, um, there was this famous book by a, 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 a religious studies guy named Trevor Ling years ago called Buddhism, Imperialism and War, uh, which had a, a quite an influence on me, you know, because Thailand and Burma, both Buddhist countries, both of the same tradition, kept fighting each other and massacring each other. Uh, so I, I sort of pushed those explanations to one side. However, recently, as I've tried to understand the importance of the monarchy and royalism in Thai uh, politics, I've come back to notions of status, uh, in fact, culturalist, um, drawing on Weber and people like that, going back and reading that sort of stuff and trying to understand, yes, the monarchy is um, uh, extremely wealthy. It's the wealthiest monarchy in the world, according to Forbes, 30, 38 to $40 billion just in their Crown Property Bureau. Uh, but how do you understand that in terms of the way that uh, there are a lot of other wealthy business people who flock to it, not necessarily just for the business advantages, but kind of the reflected aura that comes from being close to and respected in those, in, you know, maybe four or five years ago, a respected monarchy. So I've been trying to understand those kinds of things. Um, that doesn't answer your question. It just says that as I'm getting older, I'm coming back to trying to understand things that I don't think just class analysis, for example, can explain. Perhaps this has something to do with the influences I fell under at UNC, whether you know, Larry Grossberg was there, and uh, not that I knew Larry all that well, but there were people in geography, and I thought the geographers were doing some of the most interesting work in the social sciences at UNC. Uh, John Pickles, who uh, was the head of the geography department, a good friend, kept pushing me to understand uh, more of the cultural politics of what was going on in, in various places. So I've come back and looked at those kinds of things. 
Um, some of my own recent research has been on precarious work and that draws on uh, not just sort of Marxist analysis of work but it draws on a, a much broader uh, discussion from you know going to uh, the Autonomia group in Italy in the 60s and so on. So I guess um, I'm trying to answer these questions for myself by broadening my analysis a little bit. At the same time, um, I think people who just try to understand Thailand in cultural terms miss the importance of the political economy and the underpinnings that makes the country run. So you can look at the monarchy as uh, moral and Buddhist and all those sorts of things. Uh, you can look at all the ceremonies they have, you can look at all the propaganda they have, but you miss that they are the largest single corporate conglomerate in Thailand, and that's important. That's important. <laughs> now, we, we talked about your early studies and your interest in Thailand and Burma and how those things emerged, but we haven't actually talked about where people can find your work. So let's, can we run through, to wrap things up, some of the books and articles and whatnot, and where people uh, might find them. I, I, I'm a big fan of your website, although you denounced it to me the other night. No, I didn't denounce it. <laughs> I, 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 a few years ago, I put up a, uh, a blog that's not a blog, a website that just put up most of the articles, including the ephemera that I've written over the years, including a whole bunch of reports when I didn't have an academic job and had to become a, uh, a sociologist on a water supply project. So reports on drilling wells and things like this. Um, I put all those up as much as I could on that website. Kevin Hewison dot... I forget what it's called, but if someone searches just for Kevin Hewison, it'll come up uh, somewhere there as a WordPress site. Um, but I've, I've also started transferring stuff over onto, uh, what is it, academia.com, is it? Academia, whatever academia is, anyway. Uh, putting some of the articles across there, but not the ephemera. And actually, I think the ephemera is some of the more interesting stuff. <laughs> You know, when newspaper articles from the period. Uh, uh, wrote a couple of things on. I wrote something on prostitution in a magazine, and of course, in the 1980s, prostitution was becoming the underpinning of the Thailand tourist industry, and so on. So there's those kinds of things there as well. Um, most of my recent work has been on contemporary Thai politics, just because it's in your face so much. As someone who studies Thailand or who has studied Thailand, even if I wanted to get away from it, was sick of it. And in fact, I can't go to Thailand at the moment um, because I, I fear that I might end up in jail accused of insulting the monarchy because of some of the things that I've written. Um, so if, even if I wanted to get away from Thailand, because of the, the way that events just cascade in Thailand, I keep getting drawn back into it. But on the other hand, I've been working on this project on uh, uh, precarious work, uh, which draws on... Uh, some of the fascinating work that's been done by people like Guy Standing at Bath, who was formerly the ILO, but a whole bunch of other people riding on ch the way work is changing around the world and trying to get a handle on that for uh, East and Southeast Asia and South Asia as well. Um, and looking at writing something with a colleague at, back at UNC over the next couple of years, which is a more popular book about the changing nature of work. Hmm, very good. What about earlier stuff that isn't on the website? Uh, things like books and book chapters. And uh, books aren't on the on the website. Uh, book chapters are up on the website. Uh, so it's really only the books that are mis missing, and it's a I've got to find the time to put those, scan them, and get yeah. them up there. Um, you know, I've I guess I've been involved in fourteen or fifteen book projects over the years, but. 
many of them are edited books. Mm -hmm. uh, so the individual chapters that I was involved in are there. Uh, and many of those were uh, uh, collaborative projects with people like Dick Robertson and Gary Roden here at Murdoch University. <laughs> uh, many of them are still available and in, in press. Uh, others, you can search around and find Russian websites that have copies <laughs> on them and download them, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, the, the first book I ever wrote was called Bankers and Bureaucrats, mm. uh, which was about Thailand in the 1970s and early 80s. And I think that's still in press at uh, Yale University. Um, people can still buy that one if they want it. That's great. And these books are... They're not just on Thailand, but they tend to be on Southeast Asia. Yes, yes. Uh, more generally, uh, Gary has also been a victim of the podcast. Uh, for example, Gary Roden and Dick, I've already mentioned. So it's quite a powerful formation here at Murdoch, isn't it? Really? It's yeah, and that's enormously productive. Yes, and I guess that's part of what drew you there. Yes, exactly, and um, internationally influential. I mean, people have started talking about the Murdoch School, yeah. uh, political economy of Southeast Asia. And I don't think we ever thought much ourselves about that. And then since I've been back, st PhD students here have been asking us to do seminars on the Murdoch School's approach and this sort of thing. And, you know, I always used to think of Dick when I was younger and much more... Uh, uh, interested in Marxist approaches. I'm still interested in Marxist approaches, but when I was really reading yeah. it, you know, reading it and quoting it and that sort of yeah. stuff, people used to, uh, I used to think of Dick as a Weberian, uh, not Marxist enough. Dangerous deviation. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we, so we, we have differences in the way that we look at things, but I guess for people from the outside who look at what we write, see the similarities much more than any of the differences. Yeah. Well, I'm interested that you're looking at the autonomists and the rise of precarious labour. And one of the things that I work on, and I look at the cognitariat as well, mm -hmm. and ideas of prosumption. Um, I'm particularly absorbed at the moment in the work of Alvin Toffler, uh -huh. who actually coined the term prosumer and the term cognitariat before Tony Negri picked up on the idea of cognitariat um, in relation to home pregnancy testing kits. Yeah. Really? Really. Oh, yes. Okay. But that's enough. It's worth having a look at when you're doing your research towards this book with okay. your colleague. Yeah. But I think that the, the precariat is enormously important, especially in South Asia, as you mentioned. Yep. Yep. Very influential in the United States. <laughs> yeah. uh, because so much is being sent offshore in the media sector and the services sector to India because middle class speaks English highly educated, deeply technocratic. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fascinating stuff. And of course, you get a lot of that too in, in other areas. Uh, animation's a big and interesting one in parts of Asia, especially Vietnam, yeah. Yeah. where now there's this strange offshoring that sees the animation ideas in the United States or Britain, the basic animation done in Vietnam, or maybe Thailand, or maybe even yeah. Myanmar, yeah. but then sent back for better, in inverted commas, animators in the first world to fix it up. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, it's become Doing touch -up. really, really mm -hmm. interesting oh, yeah. in terms of how the jobs get fetishized into smaller and smaller components. Very hard to understand in conventional Marxist terms uh, yeah. of an old sort. Yeah. Well, the, the way that communications has changed and people are able to move things around uh, has just changed everything. I mean, go and get an x-ray in the US and it's sent off to India and can even be interpreted in India and sent back the next day for the doctor to give you results. Um, you know, and as we're seeing in academia, you're seeing increasingly precarious existence 
for people in what were the professions. Well, yes, and some of us have brought that upon ourselves, and some of us have had it visited upon us. Well, Kevin, thank you very much. I, I wonder if perhaps when you and your colleague have done your precariat research and done your popular book, you would come back into the pod and share some of your insights with us. Sure, sure. Great. Terrific. Thanks.